I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open your Bibles with me and turn to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. And the title of today's Bible study is God Rescues Egypt. God Rescues Egypt. And if you can, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Genesis chapter 47, verses 1 to 26. Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "'Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes?' for our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, They came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. 
There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statute among, concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Please be seated. So two weeks ago, we read that Jacob had uttered those words, it is enough. And we had learned that that was a sense or an indication that he had come to a place of Christian contentment. And last week, we saw Jacob prepared to die because just like Simeon in Luke chapter 2, his eyes had seen God's salvation. Well, in today's passage, we are going to witness God's blessing and God's salvation. And we're going to see three main scenes here in the first part of Genesis chapter 47. The first scene is we'll see that Pharaoh welcomes Israel in verses 1 through 6. The second scene we'll see where God blesses Pharaoh in verses 7 to 12. And then the third and the most significant scene, we'll see God saves Egypt in verse 13 to 26. So if you still have your Bibles, flip back with me to chapter 47, beginning in verse 1. And we see here that Joseph's family have now arrived from Canaan to Goshen. We see first Joseph's father, all of Joseph's brothers, they bring all their flock, their herds, and they bring all their possessions. So this is a major resettlement. This isn't a summer vacation where you just bring part of your belongings. They brought everything, every single member, all their flock, their entire livelihood, all their possessions. And notice what happens first in verse two. Joseph, from among his brothers, he took five men and he presented them to Pharaoh. 
Five, is, unlike seven, is not as interesting as significant a number. But five seemed to have been the perfect number for Joseph. It was enough. There were enough brothers to represent their entire household, yet probably not large enough that it would overwhelm Pharaoh that he was going to be inundated with a large group and perhaps a large burden. And notice that the brothers, they follow Joseph's clear instructions. And so when his brothers come into the presence of Pharaoh to testify, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And you'll recall with me last week that the occupation of Joseph's family was very important because last week we had learned that first that the Egyptians disliked, they abhorred Hebrew shepherds. Remember, they, they couldn't even eat or associate with Hebrews. So that's one thing. And it says in the text in Genesis chapter 46 that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So they disclosed that they were shepherds. They have always been shepherds and they have no intention of stopping their livelihood as caring for sheep and, and, and livestock. Second, they followed Joseph's instructions because they're gonna use this as a way to try to persuade Pharaoh to offer the land of Goshen. Joseph's brothers and his family, they weren't looking for a job. They already had a job, they were shepherds. What they needed was land because of the famine. And third, the explanation of this occupation was important, we learned, because this will help Pharaoh not be threatened by Joseph's family. Because shepherds, again, they, they were viewed upon so lowly that if it was announced to the people of Egypt that these, Joseph's families were shepherds, there would be no threat, no risk that Joseph's family would ascend the, the political ladder and become influential in power, especially political power in the nation of Egypt. When Joseph's brothers testify now to Pharaoh, there are four things that they disclose to Pharaoh. First, they disclose their purpose to Pharaoh. So look at verse four. They tell Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. We have come to sojourn in the land. The Hebrew verb that's translated to what we read here, sojourn, it means to dwell as an alien or a dependent. It means to take up residence and to inhabit as an alien. The root word has the notion that you are living amongst people who are not your blood relative. And as a consequence to that, you will not enjoy the native civil rights that are given to other citizens. You are completely dependent on the hospitality of your host nation. So the word sojourning, it doesn't emphasize a wandering aspect. The verb has the meaning that you are dwelling, you are inhabiting, you are settling, you're settling down 
We're not going anywhere. We want to settle down in your nation, but we recognize that we are foreigners, we are aliens, and that status will not change. It's different than what we would envision here in the United States. For some of you who have immigrated here to the United States and you're still here, there is probably a long-term plan that you are going to settle here and perhaps eventually you or your children will, will seek and actually attain citizenship of this country. That's not what a sojourner does here though. A sojourner is not seeking citizenship. The sojourner is residing, but his identity does not change. He remains an alien. So they give their purpose to Pharaoh. Our purpose here is we're not just gonna be here until the famine ends. We want to stay here for the long term, but we recognize that you are the host and we are completely dependent on you and we seek your hospitality. Notice that Joseph's brothers, and perhaps maybe it was by protocol because they are approaching the king of Egypt, but they identify themselves as servants. We are your servants. We, we just want to sojourn here in this land. So they give their purpose. We want to sojourn in your land. Second, they give their reason. And their reason is here in verse four. Their reason is this. There is no pasture for the famine is severe. They didn't come here out of their sheer goodwill that they want to visit. They're here because they recognize their state of desperation. They are in dire straits. The, the famine is extended to our land. And if we don't come here, we will be in financial ruin. We will be destroyed. Third, they give their request. Look at their request here at the end of verse four. Please let your servant dwell in the land of Goshen. Now you have to understand here that everyone knew, and especially because of the famine, that the best land of Egypt was Goshen. So just again, by way of review in terms of geography, Egypt has the Nile River, which is the main water supply for the entire country. And the water supply flows from high elevation to low elevation. It flows from the south to the north, and it flows out into the Mediterranean Sea. The land of Goshen is right at the delta of the Nile River, just to the east of the delta. This was prime real estate. This is not land that was thought of as something that was bad and somehow eventually became good. This is something that everyone knew had value. Back, I guess, 100, 200 years ago when you know, we as a country here in the United States did not know where oil was. Right? Once in a while, you'll hear the story of someone buys a plot of land, what seemingly was a worthless plot of land, but then a few years later, it was discovered that underneath the land was a reservoir of oil, and that land all of a sudden became precious. 
That's not the case with Goshen. Everyone knew that Goshen was prime real estate. And so here you are acknowledging that you're a sojourner to the king of Egypt and you're asking for the best land. That was their request. And then notice the stunning response that Pharaoh gives. He tells Joseph's brothers, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh even goes further. He even tells his brothers, Joseph's brothers, that is, to take charge over his livestock. And I think Pharaoh probably had a sense that here was Joseph. We had learned through the life of Joseph that while he was in Egypt, that whatever he touched, there was success. Remember? All throughout Joseph's life in, in Egypt, from the time he was in Potiphar's house, when he was incarcerated in prison, now as second in charge as vicier of Egypt, whatever he did, there was success. And perhaps Pharaoh was thinking, well, if this is what happens with Joseph, this is perhaps likelihood, a similar result I'm gonna get with Joseph's family and Joseph's brothers. And so he tells Joseph's brothers, hey, if you know any able people, have them work for me and I will put you in charge of all of my livestock. The English translation here, the ESV may not make it clear, but the phrase in charge is actually a Hebrew noun that when used in a foreign land, it means a representative of the king or a designated official. So what Pharaoh is saying here in verse six is, I am going to designate you as the king representative that you are going to take care of, if you so choose, all of the livestock that I have. Pharaoh here is giving the most positive response he can. He, he offers them the land of Goshen and he even gives them, if they so choose, greater responsibility, something that the brothers had not asked for. But I think the important thing about these first six verses is this. They came as sojourners. Jacob will identify himself as a sojourner. He identifies his father, his grandfather as sojourners. And I think as the people of God, we need to think of ourselves as sojourners. We are living in this world there's no game plan for us to want to get out, although I'm sure there's some days you're thinking, I went out of here. But God has called us as his people to dwell and inhabit this fallen world. But we are not citizens of this fallen world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that should always be our mindset. And with that mindset, it will affect how we live in this world. It is going to affect how Jacob will view his final years in Egypt, as well as his family. And this becomes a reminder of God's people 
as they are in Sinai wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to take over Canaan as they look back on Egypt, that the whole game plan was not that we stay in Egypt forever. One day we are going to be taken out and to live our role as citizens of another kingdom. So in verse one to six, we see Pharaoh welcoming Israel. Let's now look at the second section here in verse seven to 12. And here we see God blesses Pharaoh. So in verse seven, we see now, so the brothers, they give their testimony, they testify five of them. And then in verse seven, it reads, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. It's almost like Joseph now presents formally his father to the king of Egypt. And notice the first thing that happens in verse seven. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. The Hebrew verb for bless here in verse seven, it's used 63 times in the book of Genesis. And when it's used as a predicate verb, so the predicate is the main verb in a sentence. So not as a participle, not as a verbal adjective, but as a predicate verb, it is used almost exclusively with God as the subject. In other words, in the book of Genesis, when bless is used as a verb, the person who does the blessing is God. In Genesis chapter one, once God had created Adam, God says in chapter one, verse 22 and verse 28, that God blessed Adam. God blessed them, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter nine, after Noah was delivered out of the ark, it says in Genesis chapter nine, verse one, God blessed Noah. In Genesis chapter 12, when God appears to Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you. It is God who does the blessing. Genesis chapter 26, when Isaac was in his doubt, God appeared to Isaac and said, I will bless you. You remember when Jacob had been wrestling with God all night in Genesis chapter 32. As Jacob was wrestling with God, it says that Jacob asked God, please tell me your name. But God said, why is it that you ask my name? And there God blessed him. God is the one who blesses. And there's a second point to this notion of bestowing divine favor. It is the superior that blesses the inferior. Do you get that? In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter seven, the author of Hebrews, he comments on the relationship that Melchizedek had with Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham had just had this successful military victory and he comes back 
And the account in Genesis 14, I believe, is that Abraham offers tithes to Melchizedek. And so what, and what did Melchizedek do? It says that Melchizedek, he received Abraham's tithe and he blessed Abraham. And so what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter seven, commenting on that relationship, he says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, Hebrews 7, 7. So in the Hebrew culture, in fact, in the Christian worldview, it is God who is superior that blesses us, the inferior. So do you notice what happens here? Joseph presents Jacob. He presents him as a sojourner to the superpower nation of the time, Egypt. He presents Jacob to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And instead of Jacob bowing down and acknowledging and identifying himself as a slave or a servant, Jacob, without any solicitation, he blesses Pharaoh. And we assume here that Pharaoh accepts the blessing. And to accept that blessing meant that Pharaoh, in this context, accepts the position of being in the inferior. The inferior does not bless the superior. The lesser does not bestow favor on the greater. So then the blessing occurs and then Pharaoh striking up the conversation, he basically asked Jacob, how old are you? <laughs> I think it's, it's a little bit humorous, but there's significance to this. Because during the time of the ancient Hebrew and Egyptian culture, and unfortunately, I think it is a little bit different today, but to be aged, to live or to have lived a long life was highly regarded and respected. There's the assumption that if you've lived a long life, that you have been given divine favor but it would also show that you must now possess good, valuable wisdom by virtue of your long life. And Jacob answers Pharaoh by saying that I've lived 130 years, but notice how he comments on his life. He says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And a lot of people, when they read how Jacob describes himself here, they comment that, oh, Jacob is now going back to his old self. He's whining about his life. He's complaining. He's discontent. He's pining for pity to those around him. Now, it, it is true. We have to acknowledge Jacob's life will be shorter than his father. He says here he's lived 130 years. He's going to live another decade and a half, but his life will be shorter than Isaac, who, according to Genesis, lived for 180 years. 
His grandfather, Abraham, lived for 175 years. Jacob here is acknowledging his life is shorter than his ancestors, and his life has been difficult. His life has been trying. And I think that's a truthful assessment that he has because he obviously had spent time with his father and he had plenty of face-to-face time, we assume, with Abraham while Abraham was still alive. And I think he clearly did feel that his life included much more hardship than that of his father and his grandfather. But I think in some ways, this honest admission is one way of him showing humility, true humility to Pharaoh. That I'm not the greatest. I I am the least, at least compared to the rest of my family. And whatever I have is because that blessing came from my God, who is a great God. And then interestingly enough, in verse 10, it says that Jacob blesses Pharaoh again, a second time. Or at least he repeats it. So it's a point of emphasis. So this notion here, even though you would think that what what, what Jacob should be doing is just offering his gratitude and just almost pandering to the king of Egypt, he does quite the opposite. He takes the superior position and he blesses Pharaoh. But we see that probably Jacob understood what his life was all about. Remember Jacob, he he longed for holding on to the Abrahamic covenantal blessings. And you remember those blessings. God had promised Abraham descendants, the land. And remember, he says that all the nations, all the families will be blessed through you. And so in in some ways, Jacob, especially since he had that encounter with God back in the previous chapter, he knows that this is God's will for him. And even though he's at the tail end of his life, he had to be carried by his brother or his, his sons to make it this far to Egypt. He does what God wants him to do. He wants to be a conduit of blessing to those around him, in this case, to Pharaoh. So we see here two identities. We see Jacob and God's people as sojourner. And here in the second scene, we see Jacob as benefactor, as benefactor. Jacob, who is called by God, was God's conduit of blessing. And again, through Jacob and his future descendants, God is going to bless all the families of the earth through him. And again, in the same way, you and I have that same identity. You and I are benefactors. We are God's instrument of grace to this fallen world. And we have that role because we have in ourselves the treasure of how God will bless the world 
And that treasure is the gospel. So we see that Pharaoh welcomes Israel. Israel is the sojourner. We see that God blesses Pharaoh through using Jacob as benefactor. And finally, let's look at this third major scene. God saves Egypt. And we see this in verse 13 to 16. I'll say at the outset, you should notice immediately that there's a contrast here between Jacob's family and the general population of Egypt. Jacob's family loses no possessions. They lose no land. In fact, they had no land, but they were given land, the best of land. And under no circumstance were they asked to to divulge any of their possessions. But in this scene, we're going to see the Egyptian people losing their possessions, and they're going to subject themselves to be slaves to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Well, let's read first the first part of the famine. This could have been the first year of the famine, starting in verse 14. In verse 14, it says that Joseph had gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they had bought. So just like Joseph's family, who were obviously strangers, foreigners from Canaan, it is presumed that the people of Egypt, they needed food. And so they had money. So just like Joseph's family, they came to Pharaoh, they came to Joseph, and they asked for food, and they bought food for themselves through the distribution system that Joseph had organized. But notice that soon their money had run out. And so in verse 15, it reads that when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. So you're gonna see here four levels of depletion that take place. So the first level of depletion is that Egyptians, their money is depleted. They've they've exhausted all their money, their emergency fund, their life savings, they've spent it all for food. And so then what happens? Well, then Joseph asks them, offers them that he will give them food in exchange for their livestock. So reading in verse 16, it reads that Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. So all their livestock was exchanged for further food. And it reads that that's what happened during that year, maybe that first year. So by the time the the year had ended, the Egyptians had no food, and they have exchanged all their livestock. And so now we see here the second part of the famine, and they are now even more desperate than they were before. Look back in verse 18. It reads that this is the people talking. They said that there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. And so what happens? They... They're depleted of their money. They're depleted of their livestock. And now we see the third, they sell their land. All their land is now sold. 
and you notice here that it's the people that actually volunteer or bring up the suggestion of selling their land. You have to understand here that at this point, their land was worthless. Do you get that? Their land was worthless. It's not worth anything because you cannot do anything with this land when the famine is severe. There's sometimes in our family, we have things that we don't use anymore and we want to sell. And it amazes me, sometimes we're thinking, oh, you know, plenty of people are gonna want this. <laughs> we post it, you know, $200. And then to our shock and utter disappointment, a week goes by and no one emails or responds to this listing. The people of Egypt, their land now is worthless. They could give it away. No one wants it. Even though it may seem callous, what the people are saying is that we know we have something that's worthless, but take it just so that you can give us food. The livestock was still worth something. Presumably the, the herds, the, the horses, they were still alive. They had value. Joseph isn't going to ask for something that has no value. But the people here are now so desperate, they're saying, Joseph, buy our land. We know it's worthless, but it's all that we have. That and our bodies, that's it. Save us, give us food. Joseph, by buying this land, on first reading, doesn't appear this way, but it's actually an act of mercy. I remember, sorry, I'm going to share this story. I didn't ask Titus for permission. But a few years ago, Titus was involved in an art class. So he was learning how to paint. And he painted a picture of Noah's Ark. And of course, to all of us, the painting was special. This is our six-year-old son that used, I don't know if it was oil painting or, or what, but you can recognize there was water and there was an ark and there were animals. It had to be worth something. <laughs> and we also wanted to learn, not just that for them to learn how to, to, to paint, but you know, for them to learn the value of money. So he said to Titus, if you're going to earn money, one of the things you're, you're going to do is you're going to sell something that you make. And so Titus decides, oh, let's you know, call one of your friends and ask if they would want to buy the painting. And so we invited a couple over and we showed two of Titus's paintings and they chose one of the painting and they offered to buy the money or give money to buy Titus's painting. Well, we later learned that painting was never hung on a wall. <laughs> But that friend, out of love to Janice and me and to my children, offered to buy that, that painting as, as a kind gesture to us. That's what happens here with Joseph. The land is worthless. And yet, Joseph would acknowledge that this, this land was all that they had and will use that as a means of continuing to provide and save the Egyptians. So Joseph agrees to buy everyone's land. And so 
There is a sense he buys all the land, but there's also the sense that he buys land from everyone. He doesn't pick favorites. He's here to save everyone, even Potiphar, even Potiphar's wife, everyone. So their money was depleted, their livestock depleted, their land sold, but it doesn't end there, does it? Look what the people of Egypt said. They said, buy us and our land for food and we will, our land, be servants to Pharaoh. So again, notice here, this is not Joseph's edict or even his suggestion. This is not only the suggestion, this is a plea that the people of of Egypt make to Joseph. Now, I think we still have to pause here because there are many that as they read this account, they question the ethics of Joseph. They read here that Joseph is using this famine as an opportunity to enslave the people of Egypt and to take all their possessions and confiscate that for for Pharaoh and for future nefarious purposes. What we are seeing here is that Joseph is actually exercising a rule of oppression and social injustice. But I want all of us to look at some important facts here as we look at this passage. Again, I had already stated, it is the Egyptian people here that proposed this exchange. It was not Joseph. Two, what is often termed as debtor's slavery is commonplace during this time and in the ancient Near East. Basically, this notion of debtor's slavery is that you're in so much debt or you're under so much of the obligation of someone that you're willing to forfeit everything to be cared for by your new master or your new Lord. And so forfeiting your money, your land, and finally all of yourself and your family, that was commonplace during this time in the ancient Near East. Another fact, in the ancient Near East during this time, for a landowner to collect only 20% of his tenure farmers, that offer is considered magnanimous, generous. By typical standards, the average, according to one historian, was at least 33% or one-third. Nicholas of Lyra, who is a 13th century monk, on this passage he writes, Here we see Joseph's clemency toward the people, and it's demonstrated by the fact that he gave back the land of Egypt to those who had sold it for one-fifth of the produce, even though he had acquired it for the king in an honest deal. So what Nicholas of Lyra is saying is that Joseph bought the land back as an honest deal by an act of mercy. And now he's allowing the people to use, have full use of the land. And all they're asked for is for 20%. This agreement was so popular to the people of Egypt that we read here that this agreement continues 
through the time of Moses. So this is actually a popular agreement that was made, and it was popular to the people of Egypt. But I think what really drives this home is the gratitude that the Egyptians express to Joseph. Look down in verse 25. In verse 25, this is the people of Egypt talking. They tell Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. This is not an expression or an admission that Joseph is a tyrant. This is an admission and acknowledgement that Joseph is savior. And in general, the proper response to salvation, it's not entitlement, it's gratitude. Due to family, or due to the famine, Jacob's family, they couldn't save themselves. And so when they were given the opportunity to be able to settle in Goshen, all their response could be, would be gratitude. And it's the same thing here with the people of Egypt. They recognize that they would, they would perish without salvation, without a savior. That salvation came from God through Joseph, and the response was gratitude. You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants. It's similar with the Christian faith. All of us in this room, we obviously are desperate. We're in desperate straits because we are bound by the power and penalty of sin. And so just like the Egyptians, we need a savior. And when we receive God's free gift of salvation, the response has to be similar to the Egyptians. You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants. We will be slaves. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite way of identifying himself is to say that I am Paul, a bondservant of our Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of our Lord Jesus Christ, a doulos. Turn with me if you still have your Bibles to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. This is the apostle Paul describing the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of man, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant, doulos, and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios, to the glory of God the Father. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that our Savior, Christ Jesus, he came in the form of man. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. He became man. He became a slave. He became a doulos. But the end result is that the Father, God the Father, will exalt his Son to be Lord. The name above every name, Kyrios. The beautiful thing about the Old Testament is it's a picture of what we New Covenant Christians understand today. You see here that the salvation that God gave to Egypt, that Egypt's response was proper. You have saved us. May it please you, Lord, that we become your slaves. We are the slave because of our salvation that God freely gives us. So let me just kind of pull things all together. So through, I think, this chapter, I want us to just remind ourselves today and even daily our, our three important identities. So number one, we are sojourners. We are not citizens of this kingdom. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Second, we are benefactors. We are God's conduit, God's instrument of blessing to a fallen world. As God's church, we are his royal priesthood. We are commissioned by our God to make disciples of all nations. Look, everyone, the people around us in this world are hurting. They are dying and they're going to hell. And God has entrusted us with the good news for all people that Christ has come to save sinners. Back in the book of Acts in Philippi, Remember when the Philippian jailer asked Paul how he could receive deliverance and salvation. And picture this scene. There's a great earthquake. The Philippian jailer sees that the prisoners are going to be free and he knows that his punishment will be the end of his physical life. And Paul and everyone around Somehow moved by God, they stay put where they are. And the, the Philippian jailer recognizes this, is cut to the heart, and he says, how can I receive deliverance and salvation? And Paul answers simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We are sojourners. We are benefactors because we have entrusted in us the gospel. And thirdly, we are slaves. We are doulos. We're bondservants to God. We are twice gods. What do I mean by that? We learned back in Genesis that God created each and every one of us. And because God is the divine creator, he has divine authority over us. He's the boss. He is Lord. He created us. But not only that, 
but he redeems us. He purchased us with the blood of Christ. He created us. He redeemed and purchased us. We are twice his. We are slaves. We are slaves to Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. Ruth made a curious comment to Boaz in Ruth chapter two. She says to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. What Ruth the Moabite is saying to Boaz is that you have bestowed kindness on me even though I am not your slave, your servant. You see, we are slaves to a God who is holy, perfect, and good. He is not a tyrant. And so this identity as slave is a precious one. It is a position of privilege. Our Savior's full title is Lord Jesus Christ. Kyrios Jesus Christos. It's the whole package. You cannot take one without the other. And it starts that Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you are truly a child of God, God is your Lord. He's already Lord, that is his absolute position, but in our hearts, we acknowledge him as Lord. He is curious, we are doulos. And so, may we continue to live today, sojourners, benefactors, slaves. Let's pray. Oh, Father, sometimes I forget, we forget what a great salvation we have. Maybe we've lived relatively holy lives. Maybe we've made our first profession of faith years ago. But sometimes we take so lightly your gift of salvation. And I just pray today that we actually follow the example of the Egyptian people, that they how they acknowledged that they were destitute, that they needed something outside of themselves and they called for a savior. They gave up all their food, their livestock, their land. All they had were, were themselves, but they longed to be saved. And when they received salvation, they acknowledged that with gratitude and with the offering of their lives to be slaves. And Father, I pray that you will help us to meditate on the identity that we have, Lord, that we're not, we're not permanent citizens of this world. We're sojourners. Father, remind us that we have the great calling to go out and make disciples of all nations. This is something that you've commissioned us to do as your children. But help us also to remind ourselves daily that 
we are your servants, we are your slaves. And it's something that we are willfully doing because we know that you are a good master. You did not withhold anything. And if there's any doubt that we follow the example of you, Lord, when you came down to live the life that we couldn't live, that you came in the form of a slave and help us to use you as a model, motivator, and enabler for us to live this life for you. Thank you again for giving us this precious word. And we pray just as we had learned earlier this morning in today's sermon that we do need your word of God to help us to understand the things that were deficient in understanding and that it will bring a life of change, that we will burn the things in our lives that deter us from living a life that's dedicated and set apart for you. Thank you again for being in our midst. In your son's name I we pray, amen.